Got it. Welcome to the Weather Insights Podcast. I'm meteorologist Scott Pitney, along with meteorologist Jeff Lindner. Jeff, good evening, sir. Hi, good evening. How was your Labor Day weekend? It was good. It, yeah. was, it was a lot of uh, things going on. Yeah, did you uh, stay in the AC mostly? or no. uh, Well, yes, and then we were outside. We did a little grilling, uh, smoking of meat, and... Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually saw your post. Uh, yeah. that, that looked very tasty. Yeah, good yeah. ribs. Looked like you were poolside too. Uh, we were, yes. And uh, yeah, and everything that goes with it. Yeah, well, excellent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'd like to welcome our very special guest tonight, Mr. Bill Reed, the former director of the National Hurricane Center. Mr. Reed, welcome to Weather Insights, sir. How are you doing? Thank you. Doing doing fine. Every when you when you get up to a seventy four every morning, there's a quick look out the window to prove that you're still on the green side of the sod. <laughs> that is a good thing. That is a good thing. So uh, I uh, I know you're you're in the uh, south part of Houston area there. What uh, what has your rainfall been for the month of September so far down there? Have you kept track of it? Yeah, I actually got uh, 45 hundredths of an inch two days ago out of one of those showers. That was my second measurable rain since July 4th. <laughs> well, that's, that's not too bad. That's almost my total for the whole month of August here in Spring Branch is 0.48. So, uh, so far in uh, September, I'm at 0.28. <laughs> Yeah. Hopefully we'll, we'll maybe get some uh, do some catch up next week. You know, the rain chances are looking better, but more. I think what people are looking forward more to is the cooler air. You know, which for us is is nineties. You know, just getting out of the triple digits. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I haven't had a lot of rain, so I think I beat both of you. I think I've had zero. Well, we, Bill, I don't know if you know this about Jeff, but. Um, would surprise you to know that he does not have a rain gauge at his house. I don't need one either. I've got, I've got three of uh, the flood control district gauges within a mile of my house, and I can just, oh, yeah. just average the three, and it, and it comes out usually very close to what uh, my own is. But it wouldn't. It's not nearly as much of an adventure as I had during Harvey running out at a six inch an hour rain rate as it's just getting ready to overtop the ten inch gauge. Run it back in, pour it in a bucket, bring the gauge back out, and measure it. <laughs> uh, How many times did you have to do that? You think maybe four? Uh, I did it twice on the Saturday night rain. I had twenty six inches fall overnight, sixteen of which was in in really uh, the, just about three hours. That was incredible. Wow, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Is that that is it is that the cocoa rust gauge you got? Yeah. 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 I used to do that, you know, I used to do it and then I got, you know, doing it every day. I just, nah, mm-hmm. I kind of gave up. Yeah, you know, we don't, again, we've got so many uh, automated type readings around here. We really don't need to much denser than it is. So the showers like the other day, I'm sure that the three gauges nearest mine had totally different amounts that I did. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, I think the the uh, closest Harris kind of gauge to me is uh, what is that one over there? Maybe a half a mile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Spring Branch of Mingle. Yeah, 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 yeah. creek over there. So, and and I'm I'm just within a few hundreds of that one. So that's what I used to calibrate mine. Well, I'm glad that the Harris County gauges are doing such a great great work for y'all. 
<laughs> I applaud you. It's, put, it's putting the rain gauge manufacturers that make the ones you put in your backyard out of business. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those are handy too. Especially I mean, if you don't want to, you know, do all this, like, I had to set mine up and, and make it level and all this stuff. And, that, you know, I'm not, that's not my thing, but I got it done anyway. And now, and now I got to change the batteries and all this stuff with that. I don't, okay. I don't care for that too much. Yeah, no. that's a whole, a whole other podcast on the accuracy of those. And I don't even know why. I mean, you see my backyard. I've got artificial turf. Yeah. Why, why, do I, why do I even care? Yeah. The, <laughs> the first job I had coming out of grad school was at the uh, uh, test and evaluation lab that uh, the Weather Service has out at Dulles. And one of the big, I wasn't in this project, but one of the big projects was trying to calibrate the uh, the, what what actually is the correct measurement of rain was before the automated surface observing system came in and they were trying to decide which uh, automated rain gauge to, to go with for that. And it was pretty uh, scary how wide a range you got with the various kinds of gauges that some people were selling for a lot of money. Really? What, what was the variance on some of Do you remember what the variance was? was it I think, I think in percentage wise, the range was somewhere around 30%. Oh my goodness! It's too much. <laughs> yeah. we, we calibrated a few for Harvey that uh, possibly were the record, and we went on and calibrated, and uh, they came off. They were over fifty percent off, so they they were thrown out pretty quick. So yeah, some of those some of those ones you buy are just I don't know. They're they're either they come uncalibrated or they get uncalibrated over time, or I don't know. But they're they're pretty rough. Yeah. Well, I just don't like changing the batteries. Well, either. That's why I don't. I, I have a, 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 you know, it, it's strictly manual labor. If I don't go out and dump it, I, I'm, I've lost a day of the measurement. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm going to go with Bill's lead and just have that. And when the batteries go out, I'll, I'll always have that manual one. I get about 20 moves out of one in this climate before the plastic starts failing and you can't read through it. Yeah. Yeah. I got mine set up now on the back porch on a lower fence. It's, it's probably not. Actually, I think it's still a good site, but I can actually read it from my porch without getting soaking wet now while it's raining. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's good. That's a nice thing. So, how's your grass doing? Have you given up on it or are you keeping well, it that's water? A, that's a, it, it bothers people when I tell them this, but my highest water bill was last month $40, uh, $57. I don't water it is basically it. In 2011, League City in April banned lawn watering. And I was still over at NHC then, and my son was living in our house. And by midsummer, he was telling me that, Dad, the lawn is dead. There's not even a weed growing right now. And I said, well, well I'll just don't worry about it. I'll, when I retire, we'll, we'll resod it. It'll be fine, you know. And, uh, and uh, retired, it was a year later, and it was nothing but weeds in the backyard. And uh, started raining again, really in 2013. And by the end of 2013, my yard looked just as good as neighbors on either side. They were paying those lawn services all that money to fertilize and watering the hell out of it. <laughs> I can't imagine what water bills are for people that really are trying to keep them green this year. Yeah, oh, it's got to be crazy. It's got to be crazy. Well, my, my lawn is about one third uh, St. Augustine, one third Bermuda. And one third weeds that I have no idea what they're all. <laughs> I'm sure it's beautiful. <laughs> the big dogs that crap in the backyard. Really 
Don't need don't need a fancy yard when you've got that situation. <laughs> well, that Bermuda, if you shave it down enough, you can maybe make a putting or chipping green out of it. Yeah, but then I'd have to keep the St. Augustine out of it, and that would require work. And oh yeah, well, yeah, I don't want to do that. Frank Just got a golf course. Golf course is is about a mile from the house, so <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's the way to do. It. Do you still play? Yeah, but this uh, this two things: the heat. I don't like. I don't enjoy it. I was the last round I played was mid July, and I I think I was I shot a forty on the front nine, which I normally shoot about forty five on, and the. And so and soldiering on, and by the by the twelfth hole, I was just so miserable. I said, "This isn't fun. I'm done." <laughs> and wait, uh, wait, how were you playing on the back nine? Were you? you I'm still you playing st okay, but it was yeah. just like I could feel the the. It wasn't dehydration. I've been dehydrated before, so I was drinking gallons of water while I was playing. And but the 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 early signs of of heat exhaustion, I could feel it. And yeah. Like, I don't, Let's not be stupid, old man. Go home, have a beer, and go to sleep. <laughs> yeah, definitely not worth it. Well, I'll take a 40. That's that's good. Yeah. My goal is to eventually shoot my age. Um, I, uh, so the real trick is I've got to stay physically healthy until I'm in my 80s, because I, I haven't broken 80 now in about six years. In fact, right before Harvey, I shot a 73. Whoa. Yeah, my 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 playing partners refer to it as an out of body experience. And who are you? And what done with Bill Reed is what they were saying. <laughs> sort of a numbing effect. Yeah, my dad he shot his age uh, seventy six over there on the um, Bear Creek Presidents course. Wow. He, uh, yeah, I had the his scorecard frame with the ball and everything. It's was, it was a pretty special day for him. You know, Frank still shoots his age. He's quite a golfer. Uh, I played with him back when he was still uh, at KHOU, and he, at that time he was probably in his mid sixties. And it was a scramble, but they were basically playing his shot. And then, then next time I played with him, he was—he didn't hit it very far anymore, but he was putting better than any of us, which is unusual when you get older. And uh, last year when I talked to him, he had just finished shooting his age. He was ninety, and he shot an eighty-nine. Oh my goodness! Oh, I broke his age. That's that's incredible. Is he? Uh, I heard that he was the a golf coach. I think where his grandson went to school yeah. or something like. That. Yeah. Well, actually, he told he told me that um, the situation was a club I used to be a member of. They shut it down for three months to redo our green, so we played over at, at uh, Dr. Frank's course, and uh, we were on the first tee box, and it was raining a little bit and he comes rolling in i said well if he's not playing i'm not playing. <laughs> he, he's got to know something we don't so but uh yeah real nice real nice man uh chatting with him a little bit and yeah he, that's when he was telling me that he's he was the coach over there where his grandson went to school so um obviously he plays a lot of golf well that's good you're still playing bill yep mm -hmm. yeah yeah but I still I still mess with the weather. I do a little bit of consulting with AM Galveston uh, on various things hurricane wise, but very little. It's, it's stuff I'm mostly looking at anyway, so I'll just package it for their needs and send it off. Have you have you been down there recently, Texas AM Galveston? No, I, I do it all. I do it all from home now. In fact, mm -hmm. the uh, uh, you guys probably know him, Sam Brody. 
Yeah. He's done a lot of research in the same source we're interested in, but but he's he's they have this A and M has this Institute for a Disaster Resilient Texas. An unfortunate choice of acronyms because we all started pronouncing it I dirt. Powers that being didn't like the dirt part, so they have to say the whole name. <laughs> but but uh, he lives in like Bel Air, and he and they got a campus now out by the medical center. A and M does, and that's where he does most of his work on it. And, and we, I do it all remote since yeah. uh, they, they had me set up for an office to go down there like one day a week, and COVID hit, and, and at that time I was doing most of my work for Doctor Moore. I think he's. He went and fell and broke a couple of things, and I haven't heard from him much since. And I think he's basically in a uh, I'm getting ready to retire mode because I've been dealing with Sam mostly now. And but it's kind of good. It makes me uh, keep up to speed with the uh, the changes that are being done in the hurricane program and the lessons learned from the various storms. I read the reports and condense it and things like that. Yeah. Uh, the reason I asked, I hadn't been down to Galveston uh, in a while. We were down there this past weekend and uh, over the Strand and, and looking across the, the water there, they had the uh, USS Texas dry docked. And that was, that was pretty cool seeing that. That's not something you see very often, but it was right there close to uh, the A&M Marine campus. Yeah, in theory, it'll have a home down there. Mm. Still, that's the latest plan on that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't realize I, after I saw it, I started reading some history on it. That thing was—it's uh, been around since 1914, so it's—it's it's seen some action. I think it was over at Normandy. I caught that in the article I was reading. But uh, yeah, that's that was pretty neat to see that. So, um, speaking of Galveston, so we have the the 123rd anniversary of the 1900 storm. Uh, See, this is the sixth, so in a couple of, couple of days. And uh, I was watching uh, the, the documentary, I think it's put out by National Geographic, and I hear this familiar voice, and I look up, and it's you. <laughs> I did a lot of, uh, around the 100th anniversary of it, I did a lot of the documentaries that people put together. The geographic one was fun. You know, they're very professional in how they produce those and, and whatnot. And, uh, when, when was that? Was that done around 2006? Did I read that correctly? Or? Yeah, I think so. There was the 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 uh, the History Channel did the one that was done in 2000, and then I think it was then was the National Geographic, and there's been uh, several. Uh, uh, the, the last one I did was shortly after I retired. A group out of, of Canada that does documentaries that is similar to National Geographic. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that storm, the uh, I guess that documentary was based a lot on on Eric Larson's book, um, Isaac Storm. And, and uh, have you read the book, Bill? Have you read his book? Oh, yes. Many times. I'm sure. <laughs> um, so, I actually like the uh, there's an earlier one I like better. I mean, it's a good book. It's got a lot of interesting stuff. In it. The Begin uh, in September by Weems, who was done at the 50th anniversary, and many of the survivors were still alive. So he he caught oral histories from them and converted that into separate chapters in the book. It was a fascinating read. Yeah. 
Yeah, I. Uh, it's it's an interesting way that, the way that Larson did it kind of you know leaves the question whether Isaac Klein gave everybody enough warning or not, given you know what what he had back then. I mean, which that's, was that's not a my lot. bone to pick. I think he was looking at warnings in the lens of today. I mm. what we did a, a, our thing on NTWC today was about. Uh, the 1900 storm, and I just put about a 10 slide slideshow together, and I, it's I pulled out with the track of the storm, and it's, I, then I put a slide up. Here's what the, when the storm's crossing the Atlantic from the uh, Cape Verde Islands. Here's what forecasters had available to help their decision, and it's a black screen. Nothing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. It crossed the islands as a tropical storm. It stayed right on the northern island chain, right across the big islands. And there was most of those had at least one weather observer on there set up by the by Venus there in Cuba, the the Jesuit father who was absolutely a genius at observational weather. And a lot of the uh, lore about that uh, forecasting back then dates back to his stuff. But uh, it's basically a persistence and climatology is what the forecasting was. Well, it was moving west northwest across Cuba. So the last they knew of it, it was aimed at Texas, and they said it was going to Texas. And Larson and others have made a big deal about they forecast it correctly to go to Texas, and the U.S. Weather Bureau fumbled the ball having it go to Florida, and neither of them had a clue as to where it really was going to go because they didn't know where it was once it was out in the Gulf. Yeah, well, you just answered my next question because I, I picked up on that too. Is like, how did anybody know anything? So uh, I, I would think you have to, if to be a weatherman back then, you you, you better not have suicidal tendencies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have a barometer and uh, you know, a few other things. That's about it. Even if you could properly warn them on there, what would they do? They didn't have cars to jump in and drive across a six lane causeway to get the hell out of there. Train left, I think, once a day. To get people to Houston. Yeah, uh, I think at that time there were thirty-seven thousand people on the island. Um, you yeah. know, and, and what was the? It was eight feet above sea level at its highest point, something like that. Yeah, maybe up to nine, just under that. But it doesn't matter. The, the storm surge. The official report has it at fifteen point seven. Yeah. Uh, everything. So, yeah. Uh, the thing that I never, I've never gotten comfortable with the answer is why they thought they were immune to a disaster from storm surge. If you if you really want to dig into it, look, really dig into the 19, 19, 1875 and eighteen eighty six Indianola storm. Mm. That's over hundred miles from Galveston, and both those storms created about a ten foot storm tide in Galveston. Oh, I did not know that. Wow. But it was it was su sufficiently far enough away, I guess, that the, they didn't destroy the buildings. Or the buildings, most of them were built on a pier and beam. Maybe they were high enough up that most of them, the water went under them. Hmm. But, you know, you would think someone would put it, you know, those storms are pretty far away. What if they'd come up over here? Because obviously they wiped out Indianola both times. Do you remember what the storm surge was with Carla for Galveston? Uh, I think it was 10 or 11. Mm -hmm. It was at 15 feet at the entrance to Clear Lake with a tide gauge there. And I think it got up above 17 feet 
in the ship channel somewhere. Yeah, it did. So I just looked at the Carla storm surge stuff because I was doing some uh, high water marks. The Corps of Engineers took high water marks uh, after Carla, and I think it was 17-1 in the ship channel and around 15 at the mouth of uh, where Kima, Kima Seabrook is. Yeah. So obviously higher up in the bay, lower along the beachfront. Yeah. So where are the, you know, now that we have the seawall and it's been tested a few times, where are the most most vulnerable areas along the upper Texas coast right now? Uh, I would think uh, the, the all of the uh, uh, Harris County along Galveston, the west side of Galveston Bay, uh, I include Texas City because they're under the illusion their levee won't fail. And uh, I remember the, the first time I heard a speech of, from a Corps of Engineers, who was the guy, a general in charge of levees, and he said there's two kinds of levees, uh, those that have failed and those that will fail. <laughs> mm. <laughs> None of them are built to be uh, indestructible. I think, I correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, but I think the the whole stretch of the uh, levee on the north side of Texas City is 15 feet above sea level. Yeah, it's 15 feet, and then for Ike, uh, with Wave, it got it got right to the, there might have been a little bit of overlap on that north side of the levee with Ike. Um, and it was right there, but that was with Wave. Because yeah. the, the wind was coming out of the northeast against mm -hmm. the levee. The wave action of the bay was angled toward the, the top of the, the northeast-facing part of the levee. So I don't, you're, you're, you're right. I don't think people sometimes realize just like in New Orleans, as we've seen, they reduce the risk, but they don't eliminate the risk. Yeah. And I don't, did, was there any damage done to the levee during it? Mm -hmm. There was, there was some scour, but luckily it was, the levee went over top. So it was just the wave action breaking right around the top of it. So there was, there was some scour not not unsimilar to what happened at Lake Conroe and Lake Livingston with mm. Hurricane Rita when they had the wind come across the lake and the wave action on the backside of the dam eroded uh, into the dam at Lake Livingston for Rita and, and Lake Conroe. Uh, Lake Livingston was pretty significant. They were actually concerned they were going to leave the dam. Uh, that, that would be Oh, gosh, yeah, of course. You know, oh, it's one of those... <laughs> It's one of those things, you know, in the emergency management world, we call it an incident within the incident. So, you know, you're dealing with, for Rita, we dealt with the evacuation, we dealt with the, the fringe of the hurricane, and then all of a sudden, we might lose Lake Livingston Dam, you know, and that was kind of after the storm had passed through. Um, but yeah, there's, there's all kinds of things that happen um, as, as these things come in. Yeah, the, the Beaumont-Port Arthur area, it would be next on my list. It just got a lot of nasty stuff in harm's way. And bad things have happened with storms that have been been uh, uh, eventful, like Ike did a tremendous amount of flooding over there. But if you, if you put a core of a storm up through there, you look on the historical tracks, none of the big boys have gone in uh, somewhere between High Island and just west of, of uh, Sabine Pass. I think that would do them in. They had that would be a worse event than what they've had so far. Uh, they've had enough of that. I think they're actually when I've done talks over there, the 
from a little public kind of talk is they're very aware of their issues because they've had so many storms that uh, and I think the, the 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 local folks there in the meteorology world have have convinced them that they haven't seen the worst that Mother Nature could throw at them. Mm-hmm. So, Bill, when you were at the the National Hurricane Center, director, I mean, you were you were director from uh, what what years were you there? Oh, uh, eight through uh, uh, started. Okay, so was Ike your big event at the Hurricane Center? Because you had you had you had left Houston, so you were you were the meteorologist in charge of Houston, so kind of the boss of of the Houston off Houston Galveston office in Lake City, and then you went to. Uh, be the director of the National Hurricane Center. So Ike would have been first up, right? In that busy 2008 year, there was a lot going on that year. Yeah, I, for me, Ike was the big storm. It's interesting for the for the uh, the the rest of the people over there. They thought Irene was the big deal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Irene a, was uh, northeast U.S. Right? It was, it was a coast crawler that. Uh, it, it went through an eyewall replacement cycle coming out the Bahamas and everything indicated we'd probably have a cat four raising Cape Hatteras and it never got a good eye again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in spite of that, it did billions of dollars of damage and the big flash floods in upstate New York and Vermont. And, and uh, but for me, Ike was a, by far the most eventful one. Yeah. What are what are your some some of your takeaways from that storm uh, while you were working there as the director? Uh, I well uh, the the fun part was that uh, the culture uh, that was they're very reluctant to change uh, to put things out farther in advance, and I managed to coerce uh, 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 James Franklin to crank the watch out when the forecast offices wanted it. So we actually didn't follow our own rules. We cranked it out at like 60 hours. Mm. I don't know mm. if that makes any difference. I'm not that convinced that the watch warning system is all that meaningful in hurricanes anymore, even though it it, it is meaningful economically because a lot of businesses won't shut down if there's not a warning. Uh, some states have rules on when hurricane policies kick in and or don't. So there is reason for doing that, but uh, uh uh, let's see what else. The uh, I think I was surprised at how much of a run-up uh, tide in advance, largely mm-hmm. due to the great size of the storm. You had that huge wind field all the way from its center out over the open gulf uh, up to the coastline there. So it was pushing a lot of water way ahead of it. And I think that caught everybody by, by surprise. And uh, I think the the storm surge gurus in the slosh world have figured out how to model that better now. It th- simply didn't exist. I don't think it works in the model that we had back then. So I think there were some improvements made on that. Uh, so, so Bill, did, did Ike, or was it a storm after Ike? I thought it might have been Ike that really got the surge unit into looking at inundation and storm surge watch and warning and all that, that stuff. Is, or was that something else I'm thinking about? Nope, it was Ike. Okay. I was raving, raving about the fact that the stuff we had on storm surge didn't look any different than what we put out with uh, storms like Carla and Beulah decades before that. And I said, we ought to be able to do better than that. And uh, uh, it was about that same time I had selected Jamie to take it over. And he, he had the 
he had the the grit to really push on it because there was a lot of resistance uh, initially to, to what we were trying to do there. Really? Yeah. Wow. It, and not 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 so much internally. Internally, everybody, uh, uh, hell, the guys that wrote the white paper on doing it were the two of the most conservative in the office. Ed and James <laughs> wrote a white paper on why we needed a storm surge warning to, uh, in addition to what we already had out. So they all they they were all inside. We were all okay with that. We had to convince uh, states, the emergency management community, there was a better way to do this. Hmm. So what do you think about nowadays, you know, we kind of have this constant, every time we have a storm threat, this cone debate and impact debate and impacts are outside the cone and people seem to not be able to understand that. What do you, what do you think about all of that? I think I'm glad I retired. No. (laughs) (laughs) The whole messaging thing was... I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for it. If the cone is so damn bad, why does everybody use it? Right. Mm-hmm. So it's a useful product. The trouble is, uh, the 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 uh, a landfalling hurricane is far more con- too complex to handle in a one size does everything graphic. You can't do it. Mm-hmm. And any att- I, people attempt to do that, and it just gets uh, uh, convoluted, and they don't know how to use it. Now, if you use that in conjunction with like impact graphics, and then you have to talk through it. Because inside our, the three of us would look at a map, know exactly what they're talking about with the impacts, without a whole lot of explanation. But but there's a lot of people in the public that are not map savvy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what drove the uh, area to go to that zip zone uh, way of evacuation zones uh, from the old one. No one knew what zone they were in. And, you know, I say, yeah, it's easy. It's right here on the map. They looked at it. I said, where do you live? And they said, I don't know. And that really was my opener to me. I really didn't realize that, that map savviness is not a natural uh, uh, human instinct. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, I'm sure it can be improved on, but I'm not, I'm not completely convinced. I, I think a dynamic uh, cone where you could... Uh, figure out a way to manipulate it by the store. For example, right right now with Lee, I would think that even though they talk about the average error out there, I would think with the, the setting you've got and the and the size of the features that are driving it, that you would be more confident than average on the five-day track you have out. So you see, you'd shrink the cone for that. Yeah. Or then it's, that runs into the argument that people give that people misunderstand the narrow narrow cone as it nears landfall is, is relative to the impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to your comment earlier about watches and warnings, the general public, really, they most of them don't know the difference. And not, not just hurricanes, but tornadoes too. I, you know, people ask me, or if I ask yeah, them, they just don't know. That's much more of a, of a concern with tornadoes to me than it is with the hurricanes. Man, if people think the watch is the same thing as a warning, more power to them, that gives them more lead time to get things done. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it's all a watch. Just you know, take shelter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We've gotten good enough at most of these hazards that that they're not going to come without warning. The tornadoes can cause you some problems if you don't get a signal on the radar. But uh, certainly with the big winter storms or hurricanes, things like that, we do a good job of forecast. The improvements we're going to make on impact is going to be on the human side, not on the meteorological side. Hmm. 
going to improve. Yeah. Are we getting better at it? at intensity forecasting, do you think, Bill? Uh, yeah, I think so. The data shows it in the, the, the verification uh, stats that NAC publishes every year. And the, and the, uh, the, uh, the, the improvements in the hurricane models, I mean, they look kind of incremental if you look at them in a year of time. But I step back and, and look at what we were uh, getting from HWARF in 2011 compared to what we're getting from the hurricane models now, and it's it's it's, it's night and day. Yeah, I have confidence that these these uh, forecasts are pretty good. And, and if you have confidence in the model, I mean, anything out past twenty four hours, you're pretty much relying on the models anyway, because you don't have, you know, unless you're you, you know have some kind of secret sixth sense or something about eyewall replacements and and uh, shrinkage to pinhole eyeballs and stuff like that. I don't, I don't know any other way to do it other than through the models. All right, all right. So the uh, debate or whatever you want to call it at the beginning of the hurricane season was, you know, we're getting into El Nino. So what's, what's going to have more of an influence, El Nino trade winds or, you know, the uh, sea surface temperatures being above normal? It looks like sea surface temperatures are, are winning out, if you want to call it a wind, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, it, it, it actually looks exactly like Phil Klotzbach was talking about that the that the the uh, extremely warm waters of the main development region and 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 in the near subtropics is that we're gonna we're, we're gonna have a hell of a run the last month or so the next month or so out in the open Atlantic of these waves coming off Africa, but the. The, one of the features of an El Nino is a tendency for a higher, a stronger than normal ridge across northern Mexico and the western uh, North America and a stronger trough on the East Coast. And that is certainly uh, 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 looks like what we've been having. And as long as the if that setup is there, we're, we got westerlies coming down into the Gulf. And uh, every now and then one will sneak through like... Uh, Adelia did uh, uh, last week, but uh, getting them this far west is a challenge, which is fine with me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We can we can do well. We can use the rain, but we can do without the wind for sure. Um, um, <clears throat> yeah. So with the the warmer water temperatures, do you think we're going to have a more active um, late October, November? season this year my hunch is no i think the uh the uh, the fully developed el nino and the and the the uh, southward movement of the jet stream and all you're going to end up with a much stronger wind shear intrusion of dry air down and across the caribbeans where you see the most activity in the late part of the season if that's where the dry air and the shear is going to be i'd be i'd be surprised to see a lot of activity there but then again, yet you know, who knows that you could if if the if waves of, of consequence with enough moisture keep coming off Africa with that superheated water, we could keep developing out there longer than usual. Yeah. Talk about your uh, how your interest in weather developed. Uh, was it from a childhood or later in life or? Yeah, my father liked to refer to it as the defective gene. 
<laughs> I, I grew up in Delaware. Uh, actually, I was born outside of Boston. And uh, the the day before I was born, on August 9th, 1949, my father took my eight-month pregnant mother to see uh, the Red Sox play the Yankees in Fenway Park. The high that day was 100 degrees. And I came, I was born the next day. And he swears because he stressed out mom in the heat. <laughs> and then August 10th, that day was the hottest day on record at the time in Boston. So that was my hello to the world thing. But uh, anyway, growing up in Delaware, my fascination was snowstorms. And I was like nine or 10 years old. And we had a two-story house. And it'd be about midnight. It was snowstorms going on. And there'd been a little lightning in it. And I, I'm sitting there with the main door open, just staring out at the snowfall. and had the lights on and everything. My father would come down the stairs and, and he'd say, Bill, go to bed. They're going to cancel school with all this snow going. I said, oh, I don't care about that. I'm going to watch the snow. Or I can I can imagine him going upstairs saying, Betty, something's wrong with that kid. I don't know what the hell. <laughs> and then he, uh, what launched me into a career in it, I mean, I was a totally indifferent school kid. I'd much rather play and do sports and all that crap. But uh, I can... Uh, uh, 62, there was this, uh, uh, what they uh, called the Ash Wednesday Nor'easter on the East Coast. Uh, tremendous tides. And, and until Sandy, there were the records along the Delaware and Maryland coast. Mm -hmm. that, uh, my father ended up landing on jury duty <laughs> in a federal case about, uh, guess what, whether it was wind or water that did all the damage uh, out on the coast there. And he would come home from... Uh, from his day at the court there and uh, regale me with stories about expert witnesses uh, with these hand-drawn weather maps arguing mm. their case. Uh, that's kind of what launched me uh, towards uh, uh, going to school for weather. And you were stationed down in Kingsville for a period of time, right? Yeah, I, I, I went to A&M, graduated in 71. Uh, I won the draft lottery, which spurred me into being a great student. My good grades landed me a, a, mm. a, a job uh, in the Navy as a weather officer. And uh, I flew hurricanes for two years. The Navy did away with the hurricane hunters. I went to Iceland as a, a communications ops officer in a fleet weather facility, which they cut in half halfway through my tour there. So that job went away. And then they assigned me to run the weather office in Kingsville, which was my last assignment. I replaced a lieutenant commander and I was a lieutenant JG and I was replaced by a chief petty officer. So I was debating whether to stay in the Navy because they were going to offer me graduate school out of Monterey, which, you know, a free ride for grad school in a place like Monterey. How can you turn that down? Right. Right. My my boss, uh, uh, a Navy captain, uh, said, I know they're offering you this, this thing, there, but guess what? Vietnam's ending. Uh, we got to get rid of a thousand Navy weather officers and you haven't had a single career enhancing job. Every one of your jobs has been done away with. Said, if you want to stay in the Navy, uh, get out of weather and go to the grad school and be a ship driver or something. Uh, if you want to be a meteorologist, get out of the Navy. So I put in my papers and went back to grad school. So after you, after you were out of the Navy, how, how did you end up in Houston? Okay, I, I I went back to A&M, got my master's degree, uh, 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 took a brief job up in our uh, test and evaluation lab just to get my foot in the door. They were, there were so many veterans being 
being hired, even having the veteran's preference and a master's degree didn't make it easy to get in the door. Uh, San Antonio had a vacancy, so they, I ended up moving after a year to San Antonio, where I was a forecaster for six years. The Amelia floods was, and the 1980 heat wave are memorable events from that. Oh, I remember the 80 heat wave, yeah. Uh, then I then uh, I got a lead forecaster job in Fort Worth, chasing tornadoes and hailstorms. And uh, most notable thing about that six years was we didn't have to get a new roof while we lived there. That's that's kind of lucky in, the, in that environment. And uh, uh, were you there? Were you there in 1985? Yes. Were the uh, Air uh, Delta aircraft? Oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, and we've been on what, what, what back then we flew these. Uh, uh, I was like the aviation focal point at the forecast office. I fly these things called uh, 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 familiarization flights where you'd ride in the cockpit and you'd talk weather with the, the air crew there. And I had literally just landed a couple hours before uh, the Delta 191 crash. Yeah. Wow. wow. It was an ungodly uh, thunderstorm. Just huge. August, yeah. I mean, August 1st. I mean, that's, you know, what it was just big pulse, severe. Yeah. Microburst, right? Came. Yeah. 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 We didn't have any detection equipment, didn't have the 88D. So it was, uh, and the places, the office was swarming with lawyers for the next week or two. So and you missed Alicia in 83 then here in Houston. I did. Yeah. Uh, that's when I went to Fort Worth. And in fact, I had, uh, there's a guy named Steve Harned. Have you guys ever run across yeah. that? Mm -hmm. uh, Steve was the MIC in, uh, at the Alvin office during uh, Alicia. Mm. Unbeknownst to you, we were in the Navy together, but un unbeknownst to either of us, we had both put in for the Houston job and the lead forecaster job in Fort Worth. He happened to get the Houston job in 83 and I got the Fort Worth one. I still think I got the better end of the deal. <laughs> uh, when you were at AM, did you ever uh, think about going into the Corps there since you had an interest in the military? Well, I, no, I didn't really, uh, but I did go in initially. And uh, my first set of exams were four Fs and a D. And, uh, <laughs> were any of them weather classes? Yep, but uh, no, you're freshman year, you're just, you're, but they were important, you know, like calculus and stuff like that. Sure, uh, yeah. uh, but the, my advisor was a Dr. Brundage, and, uh, and uh, in fact, all the faculty there were uh, pretty much uh, either World War II or Korean vets at the time, war vets. So, but he said, you, yeah, the, the, you know, you can't do both study and do in the core, you got to pick and choose, you know, and he says, if you get out now, I can talk to all your instructors on there and, and I'll bet you they'll let you uh, either retake these exams or way more heavily how you do the rest of the semester. Ended up with three A's and two B's. Yeah. Much improved. That, that tended to happen at A&M uh, from time to time. Yeah, yeah. My, my little, I made a 12 on a, my first physics exam my freshman year. Yeah? Uh, how are you feeling after that? <laughs> Well, it was, was, was meteorology hey, still in the cards. It was the whole, is this for you, you know, <laughs> yeah. the advisors? Is meteorology for you? And I'm like, yes. And, you know, you wise up real quick and you, you get rid of that class and you go over to uh, Blinn and, and take it and transfer it back over to AM. 
the school system I was in in Delaware was probably one of the in the top one percent in the country. It was called the Alfred I. DuPont School District, and the DuPont Company would would put some of their scientists on sabbatical to teach courses in there. So all the you know all the basic courses that the like uh, the chemistry, the physics, biology, the textbooks I had in high my senior year in high school were the same ones I had as a freshman at AM. It was kind of a do-over for my mediocrity in high school. <laughs> yeah. But now you have to actually read read them right in college. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I learned to study. Think about it. It was still basically all male. Yeah. Uh, it was a dry county. I didn't know what the hell a dry county was. <laughs> Fun <laughs> times. I learned very quickly what it was. So the chicken didn't exist? No. Chicken ranch did, but the chicken didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but the, there, was a, there was a bunch of uh, shack-like liquor stores across the Brazos River on the was it Highway 60, I think it is, that goes over that way towards Snook. Yeah. It was called Whiskey Bridge, you know, and yeah, well, spent, spent a lot of time there, I'm sure. Well, the, guys, the guys with a big car with a big trunk would be the runner. <laughs> I didn't have a car, so I'd stay there on weekends. And uh, I learned to study because there weren't any distractions. You didn't have cable TV even. There was no, you had KBTX or Zero as far as uh, what to watch. I didn't have a TV. There's no point in it for that. And, uh, yeah. Exactly the college experience it is today. Let's put it that way. It is. Uh, it has changed a bit. Even from when I was there in the eighties, it's uh, it's changed quite a bit. So um, from there, how, how did you uh, land the job as uh, the director of the National Hurricane Center? Yeah, that's a when I it was there. I was they had me give talks at the AMS conference to the uh, 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 the student section of it. And those are all the best and the brightest from the colleges. So the title of my talk would be how the heck did a C plus high school student end up from the National Hurricane Center? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I go through the basics, basically the, the part of its luck. I mean, when I was flying hurricanes, uh, some of the key people I met were Neil Frank and Bob Simpson. And they they noticed my interest in, in the hurricane part of it. And I kind of kept in touch with them over the, the years. And that got me to keeping in touch with the new people as they came along. And uh, uh, while MIC at Houston, uh, 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 Bob Sheets, uh, Jerry Gerald and Max all came over here. And I kept uh, working with them and ended up being part of their what they call hurricane liaison team. At the time, even when I was director, we, we would augment. Uh, a team that FEMA operated to do all the briefings out of the Hurricane Center. And I got to do uh, Isabel, Charlie, and Katrina. It's mm. an HLT. And that, uh, I mean, the main reason I ended up with that job is they needed someone in there to clean up some management issues. And that, my 20 years of being a manager, uh, compared to anybody else that was putting in for it, was that was, gave me the leg up on that. But having, the, you know, having the recommendations of someone like Max and, and the experience of working all those storms, which I think got me in the door. So, Bill, what, when you were in Houston, how you were in Houston, how long? 15 years. 
15 years. When you were here, what was what was your most memorable weather event? As, as MIC, uh, uh, probably Allison. Uh, Rita is pretty close in there also. But for all the wrong reasons, we thought we were doing all the right things and the evacuation was a total disaster. But Allison was was quite the weather event back then. That was the first uh, big tropical rain uh, centered on an urban area. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we had speculated what might happen in, in talking with people, but that to have it actually unfold. Yeah, I can remember what I did that whole day, that Friday when the big rains hit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, October twenty four is in there too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So when you think of Allison, and you know, a lot of us here in Houston went through Allison. You know, myself included. Um, could you have imagined after Allison anything worse than Allison? Could Could you have imagined Harvey? Yes, I'll tell you why. In In uh, nineteen seventy eight. Uh, I was uh, uh, I was assigned to assist the service hydrologist at the San Antonio office for for a little rain event. We we're going to get out of this weak landfalling tropical storm. <laughs> Two days later, we had uh, 48 inches of rain up over a, a ranch near Kerrville, and the and the flow at Comfort on the Guadalupe at that time. At the gauge there was the same as the flow on the Mississippi going by St. Louis. Oh wow! And the service hydrologist—he uh, uh, was an older guy, George Cush—and he'd seen plenty of big rain events. And he said, "You'll remember this because you'll never see an event like this again." Mm. One year later, <laughs> I'm yeah. on the forecast desk, and we have Claudette, forty-three inches of rain in twenty-four hours in Alvin. Alvin, yeah. Yeah. I looked at George and I said, "Well, <laughs> going to see any more of these?" And he and he just shrugged. And I and from that moment on, I said, "This this is the norm." And I got to looking at it. There's a whole lot of of the older storms where we had some measurements up to 30 inches. I'm wondering if they may have been even more. Uh, so, and I, I've seen some of the stuff you did because I think you sent it to me in some PowerPoint. So, like, you, you get some of the same upper level patterns that repeat and all that kind of stuff here in Texas and all that. But, and I guess there were some, I think back in the 18, 1899, up, up around the Brazos River, there was a, a, a maybe a depression or something in June. I guess my question, you know, if you look at Amelia and you look at Claudette, you know, spatially, you had you had very small, but a lot of very high totals, right? So, you know, Alvin had 43 inches, Hobby Airport had 10, 11, 12 inches of rain. So when, when we talk about amounts versus spatial coverage of amounts, I mean, have you seen anything with what you've looked back in, maybe 1899 comes to mind for me, that will compare spatially to Harvey? So those big totals, but over a big area. Now, the I don't know if the slides that uh, Nielsen Gammon put together were in that set, but he, he showed very clearly that the aerial was just off the charts. There's none of the next the next one down wasn't half as much coverage. Mm -hmm. uh, if and that's even if you pare it down to like the 20 inch ice high, it yeah, yeah, it's multiple days too. It's a big, strong hurricane that stalled near the coast, 
was able to regenerate. I mean, the big flooding, everybody talks about 52 inches of rain, but uh, that first night, what was it, maybe 20 to 30 inches of rain? Yeah, I mean, we had some places that, yeah, between 20 and 30, and, you know, a lot of it fell in three, four hours. Right, and that, that's what caused all the flooding, not the 50 inches. That that persisted, it made it made it uh, linger much longer. Hell, I ran out of coffee at the house and couldn't get to a store. Really a big crisis. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that, I mean that it, that's such an unusual storm uh, in, uh, in the in the not the, the, uh, getting the same places whacked three days in a row like that was something else. Yeah, yeah. Well, it just it just made the slow crawl, and you know we just stayed on the on the dirty side of it during most of that crawl. So it just kept dumping and dumping. And Allison, I think if I remember, just kind of spun around kind of over the downtown area and it was a small storm, but like Claudette, a lot of rain in a small area. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, Allison was moving, albeit slowly, uh, but it, it was moving south and it had a strong inflow of very deep, unstable air. And it was Godzilla thunderstorms. We actually had some tornadoes uh, before sunset up along the Harris Montgomery County line. Mm -hmm. Just to add to the fun, I ended up, they, uh, Matt Moreland brought me in back to the office because I I, I'd go, I was going to come back in at one o'clock and send send uh, uh, Steve Allen, another of the management team who was covering the evening, him off the hook then. Yeah, I, it sounded good to me. And uh, I just finished mowing the yard <laughs> and Matt called said, we're getting tornadoes and I, I have nobody else I can get in here. Can you get in just for an hour or two until we get past these tornadoes? And, and I said, yeah, sure. So there I am in my lawn mowing clothes and uh, I got home at one the next afternoon. <laughs> so Bill, I, I have a question. You bring up an interesting point because I've, I've, I've seen this happen now three times. One, one was with Allison. We had the heating. And we had some some small tornadoes, and then we kind of went straight into this flash flood event. Um, we did see the same thing with Harvey that the afternoon, that Saturday afternoon. We got a little bit of sun, and we had we had a couple of tornadoes. One of the bigger ones was up in Northwest Harris County, um, the Cypress Bridgeland area, and then we had the same thing again with Imelda. We had a little bit of heating. We had uh, a couple of tornadoes in Eastern Harris, Chambers County, and then we went straight into the flash flood event that unfolded with Imelda. And so, you know, I guess my, my assumption is you get a little heating, you get more unstable, and it just kind of feeds these things. But has anybody looked into that, that that's kind of a precursor, if you will, for these kind of heavy rain events with these tropical systems? Uh, uh, no, but they probably should. I don't, I don't know offhand, but the intuitive, we kind of knew that intuitively as part of a, uh, uh, some stuff that uh, my co-workers in San Antonio had uh, worked up uh, the heating during the day the peripheral bands of the decaying storm uh, uh, get very active and they do their thing and it stabilizes the outside but the the center part uh, uh, the the air starting to inflow there and it's it, the the warm unstable air gets into the center on that and the, at the same time that the the uh, the deep layer moisture on top starts cooling off, which adds to the destabilizing. Plus, you have the outflow mechanism uh, to explain the center part of the storm being the the where the nocturnal activity goes. Mm. But as far as detailed study on that, I'm not aware of one. Mm. Mm. 
Interesting. And I'm sure there's just as many examples where nothing happens after the tornado. So that, that, well, could, be, that could be. We don't have. We don't have to bring that up. <laughs> let's, let's, let's just say you got a theory. You know, it needs to be explored. We need to spend a lot of money on it. Yeah. October '94 uh, was a mixed bag of severe weather and and, and uh, heavy rain. Uh, a lot of people try to attribute that to the Pacific Hurricane Rosa, but I just don't get it. The, uh, the the core of the upper core of Rosa was entering Wisconsin when the heavy rain was falling in southeast Texas. Mm -hmm. Wow! Yeah, that's hard to attribute that then. <laughs> yeah, I attributed it to uh, we had the subtle bear clinic zone, a uh, uh, Several standard deviation above normal high park, mid level high parked over the eastern Gulf, uh, and a deep channel, you know, of uh, of air all the way from the Caribbean, to almost saturated, coming into southeast Texas, and that little boundary, that little Bear Clinic zone, is what kept it going. It makes more sense. Now there was there was something in nineteen, I think it was October ninety eight, down in the hill country when they had their big floods there, and I, I thought there was an East Pacific system that enhanced that maybe. Yeah, that one. I, I think like the timing was right too, and and the, uh, some of the other ones I've looked at back in the eighties that went outside of the San Antonio area, but were interesting that. If you've got a frontal boundary that's all is fairly active, and you bring one of those across there, uh, the two working uh, uh, together ends up uh, being a, a producer of really great rainfall rates for the further inland type floods you get out of the Pacific ones. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I guess we should wrap up. Yes, sir. <laughs> I, I told Bill where you. You know, we'd be under an hour, so I want to I want to keep my promise and, and respect your time, sir. Uh, thank you so much, Bill, for joining us. Uh, always a fascinating conversation to talk with you. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Thanks for inviting me. Let's do it again someday. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds good. All right. Until then, take care. Hit them straight. Yeah. Well, when the temperature gets below 90, maybe I'll be back at it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bill. Thanks again. You bet. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.